Well, Father, we're grateful today to be gathered together in the name of our Lord Jesus. And what a privilege is ours to open our Bibles now and it, to think about it, to hear from you, to apply it to our lives, Lord. Father, thank you for your love that we've just been singing about, and thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless. Thank you that you are a loving and faithful Heavenly Father, and we acknowledge our weaknesses, and thankful that you know our frame, and it is but dust, and you are still faithful in your love for us. Father, may we show our love for you out of our obedience to your word. Father, take your word now and use it like a scalpel to dig in and root around to remove that which needs to go and then use your word to fill us up. May your Holy Spirit prod and poke and and nurture and grow us. May we have ears to hear. May we have a willing heart and a humble heart to submit ourselves to your authority. Father, we really are a blessed people, and yet we are so often a careless people. So thank you for Sunday mornings when we gather and we sit still and we shut off the noise. We take the book and we study, and we hear from you. So do your work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned a minute ago that um, most of the news that I receive, I take in through the homepage of my computer multiple times a day, except for Fridays, my day off. So I don't read the newspaper very often, but when I do read the newspaper, I always try to look for Dear Abby. Do you do that? Here's a Dear Abby that I saw. Guy writes in from Texas and he says, Dear Abby, I want to marry a nice sweet girl who just completed her prison sentence for abandoning her illegitimate children. My problem is that my dad sells drugs, my mother is addicted to gambling and is serving time for embezzlement and tax evasion, my two sisters, well, they work the streets, and my older brother is awaiting trial for killing his girlfriend's husband. My younger brother is a U.S. congressman. Abby, should I tell my future bride the awful truth about my younger brother? It's just a joke, right? We laugh a little bit, don't we? But you know, when a family is messed up, it's not funny, is it? And when you have brothers that are involved in sinful behavior and it's disruptive to the whole family, it's no laughing matter. And in fact, today, as we return back to Genesis, we've been studying through this book of beginnings for some months now, After our Easter break and our series on the resurrections, today is our day to return back to Genesis. And we're in chapter 25, and it's about brothers who are messed up a little bit, and they disrupt the family. It's quite an interesting story, and if you've ever 
been around Sunday school very much, you probably know this story. I want us to take just a few minutes and remind ourselves of the context in which we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 25. It's been a while since we've been in Genesis, and we've been studying the book for quite a while now, over a year, and you can remember, and we won't take time to do all the review, but you know, we started at creation, and, and then of course there was fall, and the sinfulness of man, and the flood, and Noah, but let's just go back a little ways to about chapter 12, and do you remember God's call on that man in Ur of Chaldea, the man Abram, and his wife Sarai, and God called him to leave, and by faith Abraham traveled to a land that God said he would show him. God made a promise to him. Abraham and Sarah had to wait, and they were getting older. The promise that God covenanted with them was that out of them would come a child, that through that child would come a people and a nation that would number more than the stars of the sky, more than the sand of the sea, and their bodies kept getting older and older, and no baby came. Do you remember that part of the story? And we've been studying Abraham and Sarah for some time. Sarah cooked up the idea to take Hagar, her handmaid, her servant girl, and let her husband Abram marry her, forcing God's hand, manipulating God's plan. That just messed everything up. And for 13 years, they raised the boy Ishmael, who was the product of that relationship. But that wasn't the son of promise. And then finally... Hebrews and Romans tell us, even though their bodies were as good as dead by faith, believing that God would keep his word, Abraham and Sarah came together in God's sovereign time plan. Sarah conceives and they have a son. And you remember his name? It was Isaac. Ishmael, a great nation, comes out of him. And uh, they're the half-brothers of the Israelites today, of the son of promise, Oh, it's convoluted God's plan and it's messed things up and they've been fighting ever since. Brothers fighting, that's the story of the Middle East, isn't it? And half-brothers at each other's throats. So think about it in your mind's eye. Let's look at the family tree here a little bit in our study. For, for many months, we've been studying the patriarch Abraham and his life and his wife Sarah. And then they had this son Isaac, excuse me, Ishmael, but that was not God's plan. That was of the flesh. That was a son of the flesh. God did not bless that. But as he promised in his covenant with Abraham that God made unilaterally, unilaterally, God would keep that covenant no matter what. And Abraham and Sarah come together and they have Isaac. And remember the story of Isaac and And Abraham, in faith, taking him up Mount Moriah, offering there on the altar out of obedience to God. God told him to go. And Isaac, probably 18 to 25 years old, old enough to backhand his pop and get out of there, submits to his father, lies down on the altar, tied up, having carried the very wood for the fire himself, and his father Abraham, ready to plunge the killing knife into his boy, God stops him, the angel of the Lord stops him, and he says, look at the ram with his head. Remember all these stories? We've been through all that. Abraham, Sarah, Ishmael of the flesh, Isaac, the promised son of God. And then you remember on Valentine's Day, on February 14th, it was a Sunday, we skipped the deaths of Abraham and Sarah because they were old in years and ready to die, but we skipped one chapter and we went to... Abraham's instruction to his servant to go and find a wife. And remember, he brought back Rebekah, 
to be the wife. She's the one that watered the camels. Remember that? The servant prayed by the well there. Lord, if if it's your will, let the girl come and let her water my camels for me if that's the right one. How's he supposed to find a wife? A wife that'll water camels? That's a woman worth marrying, I guess. And so he he sees her. The Spirit of God opens his eyes. Rebecca, the remarkable young woman, says, let me water your camels. And God brings them together and they take Rebecca home and Isaac and Rebecca are married. Abraham, Sarah, Ishmael, the son of the flesh, Isaac, the son of promise, Rebecca coming in to be Isaac's wife. And that's where we are right now in the family tree. Genesis chapter 25, begin with verse 19. And this is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. We will read to the end of the chapter. Please follow along in your copy of God's word. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. While Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents, Isaac who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that is why he was also called Edom. Edom means red. Esau means hairy. Jacob replied, First sell me your birthright. Verse 32, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And the passage concludes with these sobering, serious words. So Esau despised his birthright. Well, what an interesting story and an interesting family. As you read it, it's, you know, it's got some nuance to it. You think, well, that's, that's interesting. And how are we going to dissect that? How does this apply to our lives? What I'd like us to do to clarify our thinking together is I'd like us to pretend that, in essence, this is a theater stage. And I want to divide this passage now into four scenes four scenes, and we're going to open and close the curtains on these scenes and break down the passage. And at the end, we're going to particularly look at this man Esau and make some important application, spiritually speaking, to our lives. 
The curtain's open now on scene one, and we're going to call scene one waiting on God. Notice that the passage begins with the son of promise, Isaac, who has now taken his wife, Rebecca, and it's telling his story now. And you notice right away, it says, Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old, verse 20, when he married Rebecca. And Isaac, verse 21, prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, waiting on God. Will you skip down to verse 26 and notice that it says, Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to the boys. You do the math and you realize that what has happened here is that Isaac and Rebekah come together as husband and wife Isaac is fully aware of the fact that he is the son of promise, that through his family line now, not Ishmael's, but through his, will be the promised seed that God is going to bless, that God is going to make a great nation through whom the entire world is going to be blessed. Ultimately, the son of promise is the Lord Jesus himself, born of Mary in Bethlehem, through this lineage. And he's married 20 years. Nothing's happening. No babies. So act one or scene one as the curtains open is a husband and a wife who know they have a destiny of promise, but there's no children. And so they've had to wait for 20 years. Some of you may know that feeling. Some of you may know what it is to want children and you wait and you wait. I was tempted to to do an entire message right at this point of the sermon today. We'll not do that, but... Do you know that in God's toolbox, that when God opens his toolbox and he goes to work on us, that one of the tools that he often brings out is the tool of the wait. God makes his people wait. Have you ever noticed in scripture that so often things do not progress the way we think they ought to progress? Abraham and Sarah themselves are a great example of this, aren't they? I'm going to give you a son, Abraham. You and Sarah are going to have children. And years go by. What is God doing? Psalm 37 is a great passage and it commands us clearly. Say, Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I don't like to wait. Do you like to wait? But we realize when we study Scripture and we realize from our own experience that God often does not move in a hurry. And we will notice, too, that when God has a plan and when God is going to work in a special way in someone's life, almost always in Scripture, there is a season of waiting on God. Why does God do that? I think part of the answer is found in the response that Isaac makes. We don't know when it started. They were married. It says he was 40 when they got married. And the only next timeline bit of information we have is that he was 60 when the twins were born. But it says that he was aware of his wife's barrenness. This was of concern. And so he went and he interceded for his wife. He went to prayer, but they had to wait, didn't they? Scene one, waiting on God. But notice that God answered prayer. Verse 21 again, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. I'll bet you more than once he held her close as her tears wet his cheeks. And she said, how come? Why?
The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. Scene one, waiting on God. God uses waiting, doesn't he, to pull us into him. God uses waiting to show us that we can't do it. God uses waiting to get us to a point where we say, okay, God, I've been trying and trying and trying and nothing's working in my house right now. I'm going to have to just turn to you. And he makes us wait and he gets us right where he wants us, doesn't he? In utter and complete dependence upon him by faith. Otherwise, what? We are so prone to activity in the flesh, aren't we? And operating in our own strength. And so by delaying things and by doing things on his timetable, God brings us right to him. Scene one, waiting on God. Notice scene two now, the curtains close and they open again in our passage. And we have number two, our second scene is answers from God. Scene one, waiting on God. Scene two, answers from God. Notice that God answers prayer. But the prayer I'm interested in, in the answer that comes, is the prayer then that Rebecca makes because we see some interesting detail. We have just enough detail to know that after she becomes pregnant, it says the babies, the NIV says, jostled each other within her. It's as though the babies were fighting already within her. She has evidently a difficult pregnancy. Whoa, whoa. And evidently the midwives and the women of the community had no answers for her the way she was feeling. Did you feel this way? I just, I can't sleep. I have indigestion. They're just moving all the time. They're fighting. And it's just... We don't have much information and we don't know if they were literally fighting, but evidently as those two twin boys, and we know from the passage that they are, they are polar opposites in personality and in temperament and in attitude and in godliness, that even in the womb before they were born, and we do know that unborn babies have feelings and are real people, one would come around, bam, boom, boom, upside the head, and then he would come up and they were just at it, they wouldn't rest. Rebecca's just, and it's to the degree that Rebecca goes to the Lord for answers. Lord, what is going on with me? You promised I would bear a child. You would would bring about a great nation through us, and this is so uncomfortable. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. That's the right place to go, isn't it? She went to inquire of the Lord. The idea of she went to means that she may have gone to a specific place of worship. Interesting, isn't it, in Scripture, we have more than one story of women in concern with children or unborn children going and inquiring of the Lord. The Lord said to her, so the Lord answers her prayer. We don't know if it was an audible voice. We don't know if if somehow she just came to an understanding or if she dreamed it. But in the Old Testament, God would specifically communicate to people. And it says in verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And sure enough, that's exactly what's going to happen. The younger son is going to usurp and receive the blessing of the older son. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And he is the one through whom 
the line of promise and the covenant promises of God will be fulfilled. He will be part of the patriarchal system of the Israelites to this day, don't they say? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his brother, Esau, every time I say the name Esau, it reminds me sometimes late at night when I am feeding my dog. This has nothing to do with anything. Sometimes late at night when I'm feeding my dog and it's dark and I'm in the backyard, I can hear General Corliss's donkeys, Esau, Esau, and I always think of the name Esau. Little, uh, that's what's going on inside the preacher's mind right now. See? <laughs> Esau will be the father of the Edomites. Remember, he, when we read the passage, he got the nickname Edom, red. Red because he evidently had a red hair look, red skin color and red hair. And red because evidently this pot of lentil stew that Jacob is going to schnooker him out of his birthright with evidently had a, ri- a reddish color to it. And when he begs for it, he gets this stew for his birthright, and they name him Edom. And sure enough, he is going to become the father of the Edomites. Interesting, isn't it? A nation. And guess what? The two nations do not get along. The most... Uh, One of the more familiar times when you might remember the Edomites is in a story some years to come, 400 years from now. The children of Israel under Moses' leadership have left Egypt. You know that part of the story. And they're heading to the promised land where Isaac lives now. And they're going to go back to the promised land that God has given them. And they're going to want to take a shortcut through the country of the Edomites. And Moses, you can read about this. I didn't write it down. I think it's Deuteronomy 21, but I don't know where it is. And Moses is going to write a letter to the king of the Edomites. And he's going to say, may we cut through your territory. May we cut through your country. We won't pillage your fields. We won't raid your farms. We won't steal your animals. We won't take your kids. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to stay on the king's highway. And we're going to cut through. And the king of Edom wrote back and said, no, you're not allowed to cut across our company, our country. Right here it is. Look, two nations are in your womb. Two people, they will be separated. The one people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. And the implication is they won't get along and they don't get along. And there's ramifications of that even to this day of brothers continue and half-brothers continue to fight with the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Palestinian conflict, all of the hodgepodge of mess all originated in these relationships back in Genesis. Well, there's scene two answers from God. Scene one opened. It was waiting on God. God answers prayer, gives him a baby, really two twin boys. Scene two is Rebecca asking God for explanation. What's going on here? Well, you have two nations within you and the younger is going to usurp the blessing of the older. Our curtains open for scene three on our passage as we continue to unfold it. And we'll entitle scene three, Impatient with God. Waiting on God, answers from God, now impatient with God. This is the younger son. You know, when you first start to read this passage and you first begin to look at it, you kind of don't like Jacob as much as you like Esau. Kind of like Esau. He's this hairy guy. Every man wants to be a hairy man. He's a strong, big guy. He's an outdoorsman. He shoots a bow, evidently can throw a spear, can, you know, use his knife. He kills animals. He's just a great guy. He's probably from the hills of West Virginia somewhere. 
He's a free spirit. He was born to be wild. And it says in here that Jacob, it says, well, let's pick it up back at verse 24 so we keep our passage going. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. I guess that was a sight. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, almost like in a prophetic fulfillment. I'm going to grab you. I'm going to trip you up. I'm going to take you over. So he was named Jacob, heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Now verse 27, the boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. In the Hebrew, the implication of the word translated in our NIV, quiet man and living among the tents has the ramifications of being a civilized man, an orderly man, one who likes to live within structured confinement, one who enjoys relationship with people. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. We kind of have a parenting no-no here, don't we? We have the dad favoring the one son, but Rebecca loved Jacob. In messages to come, we're going to see some really negative fallout from this parenting faux pas. But Isaac enjoys wild game meat and this certain stew that evidently Esau cooks up with his game that he gathers in. And I think that Esau is the kind of guy who as a young kid he was out and about and, you know shooting rocks at the neighbor's cats and he was a hunter and he, it didn't take him long that... He just was bringing venison back for his father and his father was proud of him and Jacob was one reading books and and listening to the talk and, and educating himself and he could even cook. And there's Jacob fixing this pot of lentil stew. And Esau comes in from the open country where evidently he spent a lot of time. He lived a very unstructured life is the implication of the text. And he said to Jacob, "'Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished.'" And the Hebrew translation into the English is minimized in English. In the Hebrew, the emphasis is, give me some of that red stew, that red stew. I need it right now. It repeats the word red stew, red stew in Hebrew. Give me some of that red stew. I want that red stew. Now, I doubt that he's so famished that he's really going to die. But you know that feeling, don't you? You come in, you've been working all day, you're tired, and you step in the kitchen, and man, it smells so good. And if I don't eat right away, I am going to die. I'm so hungry. I'm starving to death. Esau comes in, he's still walking, he's still on his feet. I don't think he's so dehydrated that he can't stand up, but maybe he's gone for a day or two without eating, and he smells his favorite stew, and he wants it bad. And now Jacob, impatient with God, remember scene three, impatient with God, Jacob, evidently, and we don't know for sure, but evidently Jacob understood this prophecy that was given to his mother, Rebecca before he was ever born. I would take it that somewhere along the line, the favored son of his mother whispered in her ear was that you are going to be the son of promise. Out of you is going to come a great nation. Esau, he was out wandering around, throwing rocks through people's windows. Here's Jacob on his mother's lap. He evidently knew that that God was going to reverse the birth order here. That though it was normal for the oldest son to receive the blessing, it was normal for the oldest son to be, to be the one that 
received his father's hands upon his shoulders and his head in the prayer of blessing. And it would mean that he would be the one who would would take his father's place in the normal progression of life. Father dies first, doesn't he? And mom and the kids are there and the oldest son then steps up and he's the man of the family. He's the one who will receive according to their tradition and even according to Mosaic law, then later he will receive double blessing. So there's even a financial implication. He will receive twice as much land in the allotment, twice as many cattle, twice as many sheep, twice as much of the bank accounts. He is the son that is favored. This blessing is a huge thing in this culture, but even more than that, this, this one who is the, has the birthright, this blessing birthright, is the one to whom the Father will bestow a spiritual blessing in a special way. And, and it's as though the Father's line is going to pass down through him and he wants God's blessing to be on this one. And Jacob knows that though he was close and grabbing at his heels, he's second born. But somewhere along the line, he knows that this thing's going to turn around. He's just going to help God out a little bit here. And here comes brother Esau. Man, I'm hungry. All right, sure, you can have some stew. Hey, here's the deal. Make an oath that you'll give your birthright to me. After all, my hand was right there on your heel. Notice Esau's response. Esau says, look, verse 32, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? You know, the the hierarchy of needs kind of kicks in and nothing matters except getting some food in his belly. I don't care about any of this stuff. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And Jacob, impatient with God, manipulates. Let me tell you something. The end does not justify the means. The end does not justify the means. Do you understand that? And Jacob is wrong. Jacob is unethical. Jacob is manipulating and massaging the situation, and he is not waiting on God. Kind of makes him like a little bit of a scoundrel. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to have another message where Jacob, remember, that's the one where he's going to, his mom's going to suggest they skin the goat, put the goat hair on him. So he, when his father touches him, he's so hairy, he thinks it's Esau. That's how hairy that guy was. He's a manipulating shyster. But do you know something? The Bible never condemns Jacob, the Bible strongly condemns Esau, calls him a fornicator and a godless pagan. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17, by name. Well, that's scene three. Scene one, a husband and wife waiting on God. Scene two, a wife receiving, a a pregnant mother receiving answers from God. Scene three, a young man impatient with the plan of God and manipulating it. We could talk about Christian ethics here for a little while, couldn't we? But we'll let that go for another day. Jacob seems shrewd and scheming and cunning and unethical. But what I'd like to wrap up with and where I'd like to make the most life application from are some thoughts that I've had in scene four as our curtains open on scene four. This is our focus on Esau and the remaining verses. A man careless about God. Careless about God. You see... We don't have a lot of information here, but we have enough information to know that Esau just doesn't care. 
Esau's wild and crazy. Esau's the kind of guy that our culture likes. Esau's the kind of guy that our culture makes movies out, and we watch movies and say, man, that guy's cool. He breaks all the rules. He does whatever he wants to do. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about structure. He doesn't care about anything. This guy quit school. This is the kind of guy who, when he was like nine years old, he didn't wait till he was 16 to drive. He's like nine years old driving his dad's pickup truck, you know, hot wiring the neighbor's tractor. And he's just wild and crazy. He wouldn't stay in school. He could kill rabbits with throwing stones. And he's just a survivor, man. He's just, he's cool. And really, he's not. Really, he's just an untamed beast of a man who lets himself do whatever he wants to do and It occurs to me that here's a man who had every opportunity to succeed. Here's a man who had every opportunity to be blessed. Here's a man, if you stop and think about it, who took something that was more precious than anything else he ever would possess, and that was the birthright blessing of his father Isaac, and he said, I don't care about that. You see what it says? The passage ends, and so Esau despised his birthright. We don't have a ton of information on this guy. We have a little bit more. The next time we're going to see his name is chapter 26 and verse 34. Look over there, 26, 34. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Their entire old age... Isaac and Rebekah had a little bit of a hump to their shoulders and a sadness to their countenance because Esau brought such disappointment to their home. You know who these women are? You know who these women are? They're the Canaanite women. They're the off-limits women. They're like the women that Samson said to his mom and dad, go over there to Philistine and get me that woman. She's cute. I like her. I want her now. And the father capitulates. And goes trotting over there. Okay, Samson, you want him? I'll get him for get her for you. I don't think Esau cared a hoot what his dad thought. And when he's 40 years old, he went and found him some women in the Canaanite camp and he marries him. He lived like a pagan. The things that should have been most precious to him, the wisdom of his father, the blessing of his father, the way to live and a way to please God, he didn't care about. Can I very quickly click off to you some some life lessons that I think will be of value to you? This will not take long. But it occurred to me that in Esau, at the end of our message today, we have the portrait of a very spiritually undisciplined man. Really, he's a godless pagan man, ultimately. In Esau, we have the portrait of a spiritually undisciplined man. I'm going to print these and make them available to you, so don't panic if you don't get them all, but you might want to write some of these down, especially you men. The first thing we see in this passage and the ramifications and the implications of of the tidbits of information that we have about Esau is begins in verse 27 and it says when Esau became grew up he became a skillful hunter hunter a man of the open country as opposed to Jacob who lived in a structured society 
And I've already kind of painted a picture of what I imagine Esau must have been like. He was a wanderer. He was a hunter. He was outside of the limits. He, he was out of control. I doubt they even knew where he was most of the time. And then he would show up to eat. Portrait of a spiritually undisciplined man. Number one, he lives a lifestyle that lacks structure and accountability. A spiritually undisciplined man avoids structure and accountability. That's Esau. You're not going to put him in a box. You're not going to tell him what to do. He's a hunter. He's a free roamer. As I said, you know, he's born to be wild. You'll notice that the converse, the opposite of all of these qualities are the characteristics and qualities of a disciplined man who is godly and spiritual. A spiritually disciplined man in juxtaposition to someone who lives a lifestyle that lacks structure and accountability, a, spiritual, a spiritually disciplined man or a godly man embraces an orderly life of structure and accountability. Do you know that you cannot, you cannot grow or have spiritual stability in your life if you are outside of structure and accountability? If you avoid structure and accountability, you cannot grow spiritually. And so you may watch the movies and you may think it's cool to be a a rebel without a cause. You may think you're really hot stuff. You cannot grow spiritually if you do not bring yourself inside a system of structure. The one that God designed the most for this to happen, couched on the, built out of a family structure, is the local church. Number one, portrait of a spiritually undisciplined man, a lifestyle that lacks structure and accountability. That characterized Esau. Number two, a lack of regard for authority, wise counsel, and parental guidance. I've already pointed out the verse 2634 is what I would mark down there. He goes and marries Canaanite women. Let me ask you a question. Do you think he knew he wasn't supposed to marry Canaanite women? I guarantee he knew he wasn't supposed to marry Canaanite women. But he didn't care a bit what his dad thought. He doesn't say it in the text. I guarantee that's what he's thinking. He goes and marries two of them because he's such a big man. can handle more. Esau, when you grow up, you need to marry a woman that loves God and who knows and is blessed by God and who knows about Father Abraham and who knows about the covenant promises and who cares about righteousness. Ah. Those girls are no fun. I know what I'm doing. I'll take care of myself. Spiritually undisciplined man, his portrait includes, number two, a lack of regard for authority, wise counsel, and parental guidance. The converse, a godly man holds authority in high regard and seeks wise counsel and to honor his parents. You want to be blessed of God, guys? You seek wise counsel. You honor your father and mother. You listen and submit to authority. You don't run amok. You don't run wild. You're going to end up in a barbed wire fence all bloodied up. Number two, a lack of regard for authority, wise counsel, and parental guidance. Third characteristic or portrait of a a part of the portrait of a spiritually undisciplined man based upon Esau's life testimony is number three, an unwillingness to deny his fleshly appetites. Number three, an unwillingness to deny his fleshly appetites. You see him coming in from camp, coming into the camp from the hunting trip? 
He didn't have any game. He didn't have any success. There's a, there's a bowl full of soup. Give me the red soup, the red soup now. Why? Because this is a man who anytime he wants anything, gives it to himself. This is a man who does not know what self-denial is. This is a man who has given his entire life to immediate gratification. He doesn't know what it is to bridle back the lust of the flesh. Does that sound like a culture that any of you are aware of? Does that sound like a people group that are rushing for the gates of hell as fast as they can? Does that sound like us in America? Does it sound like the generation of children that we've been raising? Give it to them. Give it to them now. They need it now. Mom, I want it now. Dad, I want it now. No! Learn to say no to your kids. They might not like you. Who cares if your kids like you? If you're standing on righteousness. Going to lose them anyway. Going to lose them anyway. The greatest thing we can teach our children apart from the the law of God and the character of our Lord Jesus Christ and His redemptive work at the cross is to learn to bridle their fleshly appetites. You feed your kids food all the time. You let them eat at any time of the day or night. Let them watch whatever they want to watch on TV. Let them buy anything they want off the shelf at Walmart. But they're going to scream. Let them scream. Go home and make them scream some more. The answer is no. And I'm not talking about not loving your children. I'm not talking about abusing kids. I'm talking, we love kids and we love our children. We, we want to nurture them and grow them. But you cannot be a godly person. You cannot be a godly person without learning to control the flesh. And the converse here, number three, of a godly man is he is continually at war with his fleshly appetites, bringing his passions and drives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a godly man. A godly man is continually at war with his flesh, seeking to bring his drives and his passions under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You cannot be a spiritual man walking in godliness if you live in the world of immediate gratification. It won't happen. You are a godless sinner if that's how you live. Fourth thing, I need to rattle them off. I was going to go faster. Notice, looking at Esau's life, number four, in his portrait of a spiritually undisciplined man, Number four, spiritually, he is spiritually unmotivated and unconcerned about God's hand of blessing on his life. Let me repeat that. Esau clearly is spiritually unmotivated. He doesn't care about the things of God. Spiritually unmotivated. And he is totally unconcerned about God's hand of blessing upon his life. Look at verse 32b. He's looking at the pot of stew. He's thinking about the proposition Jacob has made to him. And he says, what good is my birthright? Dumb, 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 dumb. The thing that is most precious and most sacred, he throws on the ground. And the thing that matters no more than a few seconds, he gives his life to. Satisfying his gut and his taste buds for a moment. It's unbelievable. Why? 
Because he doesn't care about God's blessing. The converse, the opposite man, the godly man, listen, the godly man cries and begs out, begs out for and longs for the blessing of God to be poured out in his life. The godly man is afraid to live without the blessing of God. Do you ever, do you ever get just like a spirit of fear come across to you and say, Lord, Lord, you don't remove your blessing from my house, my life. Esau, what good is it? What good is God's hand of blessing on my life? I don't need that. I'm the wild man from the hills. Number five, a portrait of an undisciplined man, a life characterized by by self-inflicted, spiritually devastating choices. If you are ever around a spiritually undisciplined man, this will characterize his life. Mark it down. He will be living a life characterized by self-inflicted, spiritually devastating choices. Here's how it works. Mom and dad raise him up. Son, don't do this. Don't do this. Do this. What does son do? He does this. But then... The fun wears out, payday comes eventually, and he comes crying to mom and dad. We won't take time to look up the verse, but in the chapters ahead, after he finds out that Jacob and his mother have really schnookered him out of the blessing, Esau, the big hairy hunter man from the wilderness, weeps like a baby and cries out and bawls with regret because he's lost the blessing. I'll tell you something. I think that he has done that all of his life. He goes over here, he does this, and oh man, that's not working, I'm so sorry. And he's on this cycle. A life characterized by self-inflicted, spiritually devastating choices. He marries Canaanite women, and then he wants to kill his brother Jacob even. He makes these rash decisions. The godly man is characterized by life choices that prove to be healthy, stabilizing, and bring reward. The godly man is characterized by life choices that prove to be healthy, stabilizing, and bring great reward. Number six, and finally, the final portrait of a spiritually undisciplined man. He has life cycles of regret and remorse over foolish, sinful choices, yet no sign of humble repentance. I already kind of got on that a little bit when he starts to bawl because he lost his blessing. He lives a lifestyle of regret and remorse over foolish, sinful choices. Yet in Esau, you have no sign of true repentance of sin. He's just sorry that things didn't work out the way he wanted them to work out. The godly man, the godly man can look back. Under number six, you can write down 28, chapter 28, verses six through nine, if you want to read about that regret and remorse. But the godly man can look back over his life and he can say, and I think this is the greatest thing, this is worth more than a million dollars in your estate, is to get to your deathbed and get to the end of your life as a godly man and look back over your life and say, I have no regrets. I have no regrets. There it is, a portrait of a spiritually undisciplined man. He lacks... He lives a lifestyle that lacks structure and accountability. He has a lack of regard for authority, wise counsel, and parental guidance. He has an unwillingness to deny his fleshly appetites. He is given to immediate gratification. He is spiritually unmotivated and unconcerned about God's hand of blessing on his life. 
He lives a life characterized by self-inflicted, spiritually devastating choices, and he does it over and over. Proverbs uses the phrase, like a dog returns to his vomit. That's this guy. I'll never do that again. Then he does it again. Number six, he lives out life cycles of regret and remorse over foolish, sinful choices, yet there is no sign of humble repentance. And the godly man is the opposite of all of those things. The curtain closes on our family at this point. We're going to pick up this family again. There are more lessons. A son of promise, Isaac, takes a wife. God gives him twin boys. These twin boys are still fighting today. You see yourself in Esau at all, especially you men here today? Portrait of a spiritually undisciplined man. I always wonder, what is it that we worry about when it comes to surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ? Why, why do we worry about that? Why do we think God is going to ruin our good times? What is it about the world and our fleshly appetites that we seem to have to have that's outside the will of God? What is it about the promise of God in Psalm 84 when he says... The Lord God is a sun and shield, and the Lord God will give grace and glory, and no good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is upright. What is it about me that I don't believe that? What is it that I am driven to be so like the world? Why don't I revel in the joy of a surrendered, structured, accountable life of godliness where the word of God is rich and deep? And spiritual elders oversee me in my household. And brothers in Christ walk alongside of me. And my local church is the core of my family life. That's safety. That's blessing. Why do I want to be hunting in the hills on my own, being a wild man out there? I don't understand that. But then maybe I do because our flesh, right? Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we admit before you that we are a people who are easily deceived and a people who are easily taken down. We recognize that in the weaknesses of our own flesh, we succumb to the schemers of the evil one. And so, Father, Forgive us for being so much like Esau, thinking that the good times await out in the hills, in the wild country, running free from restraint, gratifying the sensual desires of the flesh, disregarding the instruction of our parents. Father, may we know the joy and the peace and the calm of obedience. May we know the security of a surrendered life to your word and to your son, the Lord Jesus. May we know the joy and peace of a clear conscience and sin forgiven. May we know how to bring up our boys and our girls to walk in the truth and to live the truth. Father, may we willingly surrender ourselves before you. Forgive us for being so like the world. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.